Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2018 Jackson Hole Conference. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Lonnie Chen, the David and Diane Steffi Research Fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is, Will We Ever Have a Peaceful Resolution to the Health Reform Wars? And it was recorded on August 10th, 2018. It's great to be here, such a beautiful place um, with all of you this morning. So I'm gonna give you a preview of the answer to this question. Will we ever have a peaceful resolution to the health reform wars? No. And you know, many of you know who have studied and understood this topic, healthcare is tremendously fraught politically, but it's also a really complex policy issue because it consumes 18, 19% of the economy. And as a result, people have very deeply seated views about the structure of our healthcare system and what our country should be doing when it comes to healthcare policy. But we're really at a very unique time in American politics. We're at a very unique time in American public policy. I don't have to tell you that we have a, a different president, a different kind of president. Um, we have a Congress that's largely dysfunctional. And we have uh, the wings of both parties dominating the discussion in a way that I think is, is really quite novel. And so, particularly on the left, what you're seeing is an increasing desire, an increasing movement to say that whatever we've done in healthcare policy before, it's not enough. And so for the first time over these next several years, we are going to engage here in the United States in a very serious discussion about whether our country wants to have a single-payer healthcare system. This is a discussion, I am quite frankly surprised it's taken this long for us to have a serious discussion about this. But it is going to really punctuate the debate and create a, a, a level of conflict and a level of animosity over healthcare reform uh, that I think in many ways uh, we have not seen before. So all along way of saying no, we're not gonna have a peaceful resolution of these wars anytime soon, nor should we because we're gonna have a very active discussion about these topics, and it's important for all of you and for all of us that work with policymakers to be fully engaged as we begin uh, these discussions. So, those of you who um, have heard me speak before know I like political cartoons, so I, I usually start with one. I have a seven-year-old son, he's turning eight in a few weeks, and every time I embark on one of these trips, he says, Daddy, what are you going out <clears throat> to talk about? I tell him, usually I'm, I'm out to talk about health care, and he says, you're still talking about health care, after all, and, and he doesn't have a very long memory, obviously, he's only seven, but, but all he remembers is, is all of us ever talking about Obamacare. Well, sure enough, here we are, eight years after the passage of, of Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, I'll use those two terms interchangeably because I don't have a problem calling it Obamacare, some do, uh, but the reality is we, we have this conflict between Republicans and Democrats, and so far, it's largely been constrained to the question of what we do about Obamacare, what we do about the Affordable Care Act. And as I said, this debate's going to evolve, but, but nonetheless, we are still having this debate, um, and it's a very active and live debate in Washington now, about the Affordable Care Act, about where we're headed with it, about whether it's working, and, and as you'll see in a moment, the, the data suggests that we're remarkably polarized when it comes to this question of how we feel about the Affordable Care Act and how we feel about our health care system. So let me start briefly by updating all of you. What is the latest that we know about Obamacare? Uh, a major change came 
at the end of 2017 when President Trump signed into law the tax reform tax cut legislation, which included uh, a zeroing out of the penalty associated with Obamacare's individual mandate. One of the things that conservatives found most offensive about the Affordable Care Act was the inclusion in the law of a requirement that every American, absent certain situations and certain conditions, carry creditable health care, health insurance coverage. And so the individual mandate was the most controversial part of the law litigated before the Supreme Court in 2012, um, litigated again in some form or fashion before the Supreme Court two additional times. And finally, the individual mandate was basically neutered by the tax reform law. So beginning in 2019, on January 1st, there will be no tax penalty associated with violating the individual mandate, a significant change that actually affects the structure of Obamacare in a very fundamental way. And interestingly enough, there's currently a lawsuit that Ken Paxton, who's the Attorney General of Texas, has started uh, and launched with several other attorneys general, which basically argues that because the individual mandate doesn't exist anymore, Obamacare cannot stand. It's a very interesting kind of novel legal case that's now making its way through the federal courts. Okay, the second thing that we're seeing. Many of you recall uh, the efforts in 2017 to repeal and replace Obamacare. Uh, there's no other way to describe that whole episode than an unmitigated disaster. And yet, what you see amongst Republican voters in particular is a tremendous agitation to, to, to try and get members of Congress to go after Obamacare again. And that energy and that position has not changed. Uh, to this day, if you ask Republican voters what some of their top concerns are, and we'll see this in a minute, they will tell you that repeal and replacement of Obamacare is near the top of the list. And so there continues to be this push and pull between Republican members of Congress and the Trump administration uh, and Republican voters on, on what to do about Obamacare. And indeed, there is this tremendous pressure still on them to do something about it. Now, we've got an election coming up uh, again in a couple of months. And the likelihood that anything gets done on Obamacare between now and then is exceedingly small. But that doesn't mean that the pressure isn't there. And certainly, you know, I talk to members of Congress all the time. They're, they're feeling this pressure pretty significantly. And they, they want to be able to do something. But they have this post-traumatic stress disorder from what happened last year. And so they, they, they tend to not want to not approach it again. So what does, that, what does that leave us? It leaves us with executive action. Now, many of you know that President Obama expanded the administrative state tremendously. He expanded the power of the executive, the ability of the executive to act unilaterally uh, in significant ways. And so what the Trump administration has, has done is basically to say, look, um, if they did it, we can do it too. And so what they've done is to use executive power to try and shape implementation of the Affordable Care Act. If you look at Obamacare, the phrase that appears most commonly throughout the law is the secretary shall prescribe regulations, dot, dot, dot. Which basically means that the, the law, Congress gave the executive branch a blank check to enforce the law how they wanted to. And so the Obama administration enforced the law in one set of ways. And the Trump administration is actually doing somewhat differently, and in some cases very differently, and I would argue uh, very significant changes to the law, some of which um, are in fact very good. And so we'll talk about what those look like and what those are. Um, just briefly, I think it's important to set the stage and understand why, why it is 
that conservatives continue to have a difficult time with Obamacare. I'm going to take a 2,000-page law and give you a two-and-a-half-minute uh, set of arguments about why conservatives don't like it. So here we go. If you think about the healthcare system before Obamacare, it was largely state-based. Everything that we did from a regulatory perspective was, was by and large done at the state level. Obamacare federalized the vast majority of that decision-making, including questions about what insurance plans could charge, what factors they could use to vary the charge for health insurance plans, whether health insurance plans had to be offered regardless of one's health care status, uh, and questions regarding benefits, what benefits a health care plan had to provide. And so what you see is a migration in Obamacare away from state-based control to federally-based control. So now we have regulations that say everybody's got to be able to get a health care insurance plan regardless of their health status. You can't vary uh, health insurance rates based on health care status. And every plan has to carry a set of benefits known as essential health benefits, regardless of whether you plan to use them or not. And so the standardization of the healthcare system is something that conservatives have fundamentally recoiled against. What else have they recoiled against? Well, secondly, they don't like the fact that Obamacare resulted in a significant expansion of the entitlement state. 80% of the coverage gains from Obamacare came because of the expansion of the Medicaid program. Medicaid is the joint federal state program, healthcare program, that was originally designed to cover low-income moms and kids. Today, because of Obamacare, anybody making less than 138% of the federal poverty line gets access to health care through the Medicaid program. And this effectuates a, a huge expansion of the entitlement state because this program will exist whether Congress does anything or not into perpetuity. And so a lot of conservatives say, look, this is, this is not a good deal. The, uh, the Affordable Care Act also created tax credits and subsidies uh, that are also entitlement programs that, uh, that people get to help purchase health insurance. Associated with that, you will recall President Obama argued that Obamacare would not increase the deficit. That was a whopper, but here's how he, got, he's, here's how he sort of got away with it. He sort of got away with it by, by increasing taxes, right? So there were significant increases um, Taxes on capital, taxes on labor, taxes on health insurance, medical devices, pharmaceuticals, tanning salons, you name it. And so the, the law had a significant number of tax increases, and, and those were offensive to many conservatives. And then finally, we talked a little bit about the mandates, the individual mandates basically gone as of 2019. There still is in place an employer mandate, uh, which has been pushed off, was pushed off a couple of different times but is designed to um, compel employers of a certain size to offer coverage. So that, that's the essential critique. It has to do with where the power for healthcare lies, but also how big government is. Those are the two reasons, fundamentally, uh, why conservatives have continued to oppose Obamacare, and I think for, for good reason. So let me identify for you five trends that are worth watching as we think about the future of Obamacare and the future of this debate over healthcare, and then we'll come back at the end to talk a little bit about the next steps in health reform, particularly for conservatives. So, uh, the popularity of Obamacare, this is a time series that goes back uh, to passage of the law in 2010, 2011, and there are three lines here. The middle line is essentially the favorability rating of Obamacare amongst all adults. And as you can see, it's 
pretty much hovered around 50% for the duration of the law. It, it bumps up and down. It, it got broadly more popular in 2017 during the repeal and replace effort. It subsequently kind of come back down. The interesting thing about this, though, is the partisan polarization. So look at where Republicans are in favorability, which is the lower blue line, and where Democrats are in favorability, which is the higher blue line. This is an extremely uh, polarizing law. And how you view the law is largely a function of whether you're Republican or Democrat. For a while, it was also largely a function of how you felt about President Obama. And so what we're seeing, first of all, is remarkable stability in the data, but second of all, significant polarization. And that's why these health reform wars continue, because Republicans and Democrats view the healthcare system so very differently. The second thing, it is absolutely the case that Obamacare has resulted in reductions in the percentage of Americans who are uninsured. It is surely the case that if you throw a trillion dollars over 10 years at a problem, you may actually make some progress. And so what we've seen here is a reduction in the rate of the uninsured. But what's the interesting thing about the data? We've hit a plateau, all right? So if you look, we hit about 10.5% a couple of years ago, and now we're actually inching back up. Now, why is that? Why is that happening? A couple reasons. First of all, all of the gains that were to be had, all of the low-hanging fruit, which I refer to in terms of this expansion of the Medicaid program, that has already been picked. What we're at it is now at a point where we've got people outside the system for a variety of different reasons. So one reason might be that they're illegal or undocumented immigrants. And so they're outside the system and likely will remain outside the system. The second thing is you've got a number of states that have made the decision not to expand the Medicaid program. I believe Wyoming is actually one of them that, ha that, that has made the decision to resist the Medicaid expansion. Texas is a big one as well. When Obamacare was first written, states didn't have a choice. States had to expand uh, the Medicaid program. This got litigated all the way to the Supreme Court in that 2012 case I referred to, a case called NFIB versus Sebelius, where the court held that you cannot compel states to do this. It's an unconstitutional conscription of state power. And so states were therefore given the optionality to say, okay, we don't want to expand Obamacare. And sure enough, you had a number of different states that decided not to do it. So what we're seeing here is an artifact of people who are outside the system but also states that have made the decision not to expand Medicaid, and therefore uh, we've basically hit the, the, the point that, that is sort of, this is as good as it's gonna get with Obamacare. And this explains some of why you're feeling this agitation from the left about single payer. Because they say, we'd love to be able to make, a, make some progress on where we are now. And the only way to do it is, is to go, as I said, to a dramatically different system. Um, the, Midterm elections coming up, interestingly enough, will be the, the sort of first salvo in this discussion and debate over healthcare reform. And the reality is this. You are seeing more and more candidates on the left in the Democratic Party being willing to fully embrace single payer. And we've seen this, this dynamic over and over again in races now. And actually in several races, several primary races, we've seen the more liberal Democrat prevail, particularly the Democrat uh, that is willing to embrace single payer. So the question is, um, what are the issues that you're watching? And as you can see for Democrats, healthcare is right up there. It is, it is tops, uh, one of the top issues, if not the top issue. Amongst independents, it's important as well. Amongst Republicans, uh, less so. Republicans are more focused on the economy and jobs. Obviously, these numbers will, will, will bounce around a lot, but, but here is the thing. 
Democrats do believe that we have to have another debate about health care. They actually are much more likely to believe that. And so as we head toward this election, you're going to start to hear more of that dialogue pick up. You know, so far we've been so focused. The news cycle, I mean, it's exhausting. Those of you who watch any cable news, it's exhausting to have to follow this every single day. There's always some crazy development about this subpoena or that thing. And, but we're going to talk about the election soon because it's inevitable. And when we have this dialogue about the election, it is sure, you can bet, that health care is going to come back into the discussion. Um, the interesting thing, though, is if you, if you toggle over and ask Democrats and Republicans separately, what is it about health care that you care about? What is the health care issue on which you are basing your vote? For Democrats, the most important things are they want the pre-existing condition provision retained. Now, let, let's just get this out on the table. There is no legitimate Republican proposal that, has going, that, that, is a, that would have effectuated the repeal of this guarantee. There's a lot of um, what some might call fake news out there about this. The reality is that there is no realistic plan that would have done away with the federal protection for pre-existing conditions. This is a, this is a, a, a red herring in my mind. The, the, the fact that they even asked this question is a little bit aggravating to me. But still, it's, it's an important issue. Uh, almost as important are stabilizing the marketplaces for the Affordable Care Act. And the last bar is the one I want you to pay attention to, which is passing a national health care plan or Medicare for all. That is single payer. And so as you can see, that positioning is very, very important for Democrats as they go into this race. Now, predictably, if you ask Republicans what's most important, it's repealing the ACA. That's the bar in the middle. And they have much less interest in positioning with respect to uh, Medicare for all. And they're also concerned about this pre-existing condition issue. But you can see there why we have these health reform wars. Because on the one hand, you've got the left saying Medicare for all. And on the other hand, you've got the right saying, let's repeal and replace Obamacare. So this is the challenge we, we face as we go into this election in October. Okay, uh, I mentioned earlier Medicaid expansion. Uh, a trend worth thinking about, this is the fourth of my five trends. Think about the Medicaid expansion as an irresistible pot of money. If you're a governor and you're looking at the Medicaid expansion, you have very little remaining incentive fiscally to not take this money. What, what the authors of Obamacare did is they made it very, very attractive for states to take the Medicaid expansion. They basically offered a significantly greater amount of money to states who made the decision to say, yes, we're going to opt into Medicaid than states that did not. And so a lot of governors looked at this and said, look, um, I don't like Medicaid, but we need the money. And we need the money, we can take that money and we can use it for education, we can use it for prisons, we can use it for something else, I just need the money from Washington. And so what you're seeing now increasingly is there are states under pressure to adopt the Medicaid expansion. Um, there is legislation currently in, in uh, consideration, actually it passed in Utah, which would make Utah a Medicaid expansion state. Now, they have a specific definition of Medicaid expansion. They only want to make it available to the poorest of the poor. They do not want to make it generally available to anybody making less than 138% of federal poverty. But if Utah's experiment succeeds, and there's a couple of steps that have to happen before they're able to succeed, one of which is that the federal government has to give them approval to do this. 
It would not surprise me to see a number of states in the center of the country adopt a similar approach. Essentially, we will get the benefits of the Medicaid expansion money without some of the perceived detriment of a massive entitlement expansion. So keep a very close eye on this. This is going to be a major issue at the state level. It, it was significant in Virginia in the governor's race last year. It's been significant in a number of states. So this is obviously an issue worth watching because as I said earlier, Medicaid is such a huge part of the Affordable Care Act. You cannot get away from understanding Obamacare without understanding the role of the Medicaid expansion. Finally, uh, you hear a lot about premium increases in Obamacare. So let me be 100% clear about this. The people who are most affected by these premium increases are working middle class families. Why is that? What we're seeing is that there is remarkable stability in Obamacare premiums in the large employer market. So if you work for GE or IBM, yes, you're seeing your premiums go up every year, but the trend is relatively stable. Where there is massive instability is in the individual marketplace. If you are an Uber driver turned Starbucks barista who also scoops ice cream at Baskin Robbins, you may not get health care from any of them. You may need to buy your own health care. And in that situation, uh, you're working, but you're having to buy health insurance on the individual market. And the individual market is where premiums have been the least stable. So this is a comparison of data from 2013, which is the year before all of Obamacare's market regulations went into effect, to 2017, which is when we have the most recent data. There's actually two different data sets that you can use, which is why you see the different color lines. Don't be too distracted by that. Just look at the blue lines. So $341 per month in 2014 to $476 per month on average in 2017. These increases vary by state. So in some states, you see four, 500% increases. In some states, you see decreases. It just depends on where you live. But the instability of the individual marketplace is fueled by the structure of Obamacare itself. Recall what I said. You cannot pick a plan based on the benefits you want. You cannot pay less if you're healthy. <clears throat> so what does that mean? If you can't pay less because you're healthy and you have to buy the same kind of plan, well, that's going to mean that people who are healthy are subsidizing risk for people who are less healthy. And so the challenge we have now is this is only going to get worse. Why is it going to get worse? Because the individual mandate penalty got repealed. So there goes the last reason why someone who was healthy might fork over $476 a month to pay for health insurance. So what's going to be left? The only people who are going to be left buying health insurance are the people who are sick, and that's going to drive the cost of health insurance up. This is a, a trend that a lot of analysts predicted when Obamacare was first passed, and it's now actually coming to pass. So what we're seeing is, is acceleration in premiums, uh, and this has happened over the last couple of years. It's going to continue happening as we go forward. Now, part of the reason why these premiums have gone up is the structure of Obamacare. But it's also the case that fewer and fewer insurers want to sell Obamacare-compliant policies because they lose money on it. They don't, they, 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 there's no reason for them to sell policies if they're going to lose money on it. Furthermore, Republican Congresses and this administration have refused to pay uh, the insurance companies uh, some of what's known as risk mitigation funding. Obamacare included in it large pots of essentially payoffs for insurers to participate in Obamacare. And what Republicans have said is basically, no, we're not going to do this anymore. 
And so insurers have said, okay, well, if we're not going to get the money, we're going to have a very difficult time justifying, particularly in publicly traded situations to our shareholders, why it is that we're offering uh, insurance in marketplaces where we're going to lose money. So what you see here is planned competition has come way down. In 2018, the number of counties where there is only one insurer went from about 1,000 to over 1,600. So the measure of competition in the marketplace has gone down dramatically. So what do we know? Competition goes down, prices go up as well. So all of these factors together are related to the structure of the law, they're related to some policy decisions that have been made, but make no mistake, in the individual market, so if you don't get health insurance coverage through an employer, and a lot of small employers, very small employers don't offer coverage, and you got a lot of Americans who work multiple jobs, uh, these are the people that are most affected by what we've seen in, in the individual market in terms of that turmoil. Okay, let me conclude with a couple of uh, thoughts about where the Trump administration is going and then uh, where Congress, I think, will need to go as we think about health care reform. So um, recently, you may have heard the Trump administration issued final regulations that make available what are known as short-term limited duration plans. Okay, what are these? Uh, before Obamacare, a lot of insurance companies offered insurance policies that were designed to tide people over when they were between jobs or between insurance coverages. Uh, those plans were designed to not be used for more than 12 months. They oftentimes had a very limited set of benefits, but guess what? They were very cheap. They were maybe $50 or $60 a month in premium. When the Obama administration came in and they wanted to standardize everything, they said, we don't like these short-term plans, so we're going to limit them to no more than three months, and we're going to put all sorts of additional regulations on them. What the Trump administration decided to do, and they've been developing this regulation over the course of the last year, is to say, we want to give people, those working poor that I talked about, or working middle class families that I mentioned earlier, we want to give people more choices. So we are going to make these plans available for 12 months again, and we're going to remove some of the regulations that the Obama administration put into effect. So what does that do? It creates a more competitive marketplace. And it allows people to buy plans that are skinnier, Yes, they offer fewer benefits. Yes, they have higher deductibles. But they give people optionality. And if you give people optionality, the theory is prices are going to come down and you're going to create more competition in the marketplace. So this is actually a very important development. Uh, and it's something the Trump administration has done all through executive action on its own. So pay close attention to this trend. You've got a lot of people who are uh, supporters of Obamacare saying this is really awful. People might actually buy coverage uh, and they don't know what they're doing, this is a very typical argument that we hear, that people don't actually know what they're doing. I do think it's important for these plans to have full disclosure. It's important that we know what is covered and what is not covered. But having this competition, I think, is crucially important. Second thing, the Trump administration has also issued regulatory guidance that expands access to what are known as association health plans. These are basically plans where small businesses can pool together, sometimes across state lines, to offer coverage, hopefully at a more affordable rate, to their employees. Obviously, the larger pool of people you have, the more you're spreading out the risk, the lower the premiums. So this is another important development. Finally, this administration is doing a ton to convince states to be more innovative as they think about healthcare. And there's a lot of different ways this manifests itself. One way that many of you may have heard about is some states are now beginning to say, if you're getting Medicaid benefits, you have to be working. You have to be working, looking for a job, I mean, it's, it's a very liberal definition of work, as it turns out. But what they're saying is, if you're going to get these benefits, 
we have to have a social contract here. You've got to be working, too. And this has been so controversial with the left. I mean, their heads have exploded over this thing. And here's why. Because there's never been a work requirement in Medicaid before. And their argument is, well, there never has been one. Why should there be one? And the argument from conservatives is just because you've done it one way and you've been wrong for 40 years doesn't mean you've got to keep doing it wrong for another 40 years, right? So states like Kentucky have been very forward-looking in this respect. The only problem is some of this has gotten tied up in litigation now. So the Kentucky plan was the first one that would have instituted work requirements in Medicaid. They got sued by a, by a bunch of consumer advocacy groups, and now this issue is, is being litigated in the courts. So we'll see what happens. The second thing is you've got a lot of states that are trying to figure out how can we lower premiums in our state. And so Alaska was one of the first states to put in place what's known as a reinsurance program. Essentially, they take some of the money that they would have gotten from the federal government for health care programs, and they apply it in a way to lower premiums for people in their state. And as of yesterday, in fact, the, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Alex Azar, is out there trying to encourage more states to do this. He believes this is a great way to bring down premiums and create a better marketplace. And we could potentially see even bolder changes in some states. Now, the difficulty here is there is actually this provision in Obamacare that lets states do a lot of innovative things. Some states, like California, where I live, are thinking about doing single payer on their own. So the danger here, of course, is that some states are going to move in a, in a bad policy direction. But part of the risk when you have state innovation is you get some bad innovation sometimes. And so it'll be an interesting question of whether the Trump administration actually lets this go or not. So if there is to be another round of health reform, and let me just wrap up by saying this, if there is to be another round of health reform, it's got to satisfy all these components. First of all, it's got to hold Republicans together. What we saw from the debacle of repeal and replace last year is that Republicans have significant disagreements when it comes to health care. Susan Collins, a very moderate Republican from Maine, feels very differently from Ted Cruz of Texas. And, and a lot of people just, they didn't recognize that. They didn't appreciate those differences. And so whatever health reform we have has to figure out a way to tie those two together. Secondly, you got to focus on cost. For all the discussion about coverage, we've hit a plateau on coverage. The only way that we get any more benefit on the coverage side is to make health care more affordable. There's no other way around it. Um, states, I still think, are the key here to getting things done. And there has to be some politics, as there always is. And it's, it's got to allow the president and Republicans to make the claim that they're making the system better in some way. And so all of these prerequisites are necessary if there is to be another successful round of health reform. And, and I tend to think, by the way, that we can get there, that there are a set of proposals that could meet all of these requirements. So let me suggest to you kind of what this might look like. And, and uh, you know, I'd, I'd love to have a back and forth if people disagree with me on this. I, I tend to think that we have to go back to basic principles. And the, and the basic principle that animates how a lot of Republicans think is federalism. You have to go back to where things are done better than in Washington, and that's at the state level. And so if you were to put together a set of reforms, here's what it might look like. First of all, I do think you've got to protect those politically popular parts of Obamacare. I, I don't particularly like the way that Obamacare dealt with the pre-existing condition issue, but I, I, I don't think eight years in, it's politically feasible to say, let's get rid of it. I, I think you've got to keep that. But I do think that you can restructure a lot of the spending in Obamacare. And so you repeal spending for the Medicaid expansion. You repeal spending for all of these entitlements that were created by the law for coverage. And you take all of that money and you send it in a block grant to states. 
And you tell states, look, you can have the flexibility to use this money to expand coverage. But you've got to do it, you've, got to actually, you've actually got to use it to expand coverage and lower costs. And if you can do that, then you can have access to a large sum of money that comes with rel relatively few strings attached. And I've talked to very few governors for whom this is not a very attractive proposition, Republicans and Democrats. They would love to see this happen. The goal, of course, is not to leave low-income residents without health care. If the state wants, it can expand Medicaid, or it can take that money and it can let people on Medicaid buy private plans, or it can say to people, we're going to figure out a way to give you some kind of a state tax credit or a direct subsidy so you can buy health insurance. The possibilities are limitless. States can do a variety of different things. The goal really is this. What we have in today's system is a massive inequity in per-person funding, per-person spending on health care for the poor. So you go to a state like Massachusetts. Massachusetts spends easily triple or quadruple what a state like Alabama will spend per poor resident on health care. The goal of this kind of approach is not only to empower states, but to greater equalize the spending that we see between states. And that's actually a very, very important feature of this, because what we want to do is we want to begin to equalize, yes, understanding it costs more to deliver health care in California than it does in other places. So you have some adjustment for that. And yes, it is the case that some states are going to have sicker people than others, and so you provide some adjustment for that. But fundamentally, fundamentally, you want to get to a point where there's relative equity between the states. So you don't have gaming of the system. You don't have people moving to Massachusetts because they realize the benefits are much more generous or moving uh, to another state because they want to get access to one thing or another. You want to create that equity, and that's what the system does. And the final thing, which a lot of people in conservative circles have been very supportive of, I mean, I think this is a good idea, I don't think this is going to solve all of our problems, is to expand health savings accounts. And this is a trend that we've seen in the, in the employer marketplace. More and more employers are offering what are known as high deductible health plans coupled with health savings accounts, essentially a tax-preferred way to save for your own health care expenses. I think this is a good idea. I think we should do more to encourage people to have more ownership of their health care and we can do that through some policy changes that are actually making their way through the Congress now. So some combination of these reforms, I think, is probably going to be health reform 3.0, or 4, whatever we're on now. This is going to be the next round of, of conservative health reform that we're going to see. So all in all, what I would say is we, we, we have a very interesting time coming for us in healthcare. We didn't talk much about single payer. I'm happy to get into that a little bit in the question and answer, but we're going to have very different visions, radically different visions of our healthcare system. One where the federal government is all encompassing, all controlling, and one where we really return healthcare, I think, to the place where it's done best at the state level. It's an exciting debate. It's one that I look forward to engaging, and it's one that I hope all of you will be involved in as well. And with that, I'm happy to take some questions. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Podbean, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.